0: Nine. Howdy, howdy, Wisconsin. Jerry Bader in once again for Jeff Wagner. We start this hour with, I think, a deceptively difficult question. Let me give you an example here to set this up. One of my favorite all-time quotes comes from U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. Potter Stewart is not all that distinguished in American history, but he did have one famous, some may say, infamous moment. The Supreme Court was taking up the issue of obscenity and when the government can ban it, and Potter Stewart said famously, "I can't define obscenity, obscenity, but I know it when I see it," which of course led to think, "Well, gee, I wonder how often he sees it." Blah, 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 blah. So. But I think the average person can understand what Justice Stewart was saying there, right? Well, I can't exactly put it in words, but I know it when I see it. I thought of that. I was reminded of that with a story that has been in the news the past couple of days about State Representative Dale Coenga. No, it has nothing to do with obscenity. It does have to do with intoxication. How do we define drunk? Now, I am not talking about blowing into a device that shows .08, .10, whatever. That is not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is how do we know what, what criteria do we use to look at a person, look at their actions, look at their behavior, and say well, a number of things. They've been drinking, they're tipsy, they're buzzed, they're drunk. This... Because of an allegation that State Representative Dale Coenga was inebriated during state budget debate three years ago. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel first had this story. And yesterday, uh, in my day job at Mediatrackers.org, I reached out to State Representative Dale Coenga, and I did get a statement from him. He categorically denies the allegation. This is what he said, and the Journal Sentinel has since picked up on the, the story that I put, and media trackers, and, and did follow-up reporting on it. Here is what he had to say, and Dale Vying uh, for the State Senate seat being vacated by Leah Vukmir as she runs for U.S. Senate. Here was the quote. This is a desperate approach because they don't have me on the issues. I have effectively argued the merits of our policies that help families, seniors, and young professionals. This is the politics of personal destruction, and my constituents know my character. We're going to run a positive issues-based campaign. Now, what happened is back in 2015, during the budget debate, there was a bomb scare at the Capitol, and apparently some lawmakers went across the street for a beer. Koenga acknowledged to me that he had one beer, but said he was not intoxicated when he returned to the Capitol. There is a video out there from Wisconsin Eye that shows Dale talking. Someone from Planned Parenthood tweeted that out after Democrat, uh, Democratic Senate Minority Leader Jennifer Schilling made this allegation during a forum. It's out there. You can see it. I posted it in the story at Mediatrackers.org. The journal Sentinel has now embedded it in the story. They did not, and I don't think there was any motive here, they just for whatever reason did not uh, initially in the story put the video there. So by Jennifer Schilling's reckoning, Dale was inebriated. State Representative Coinga was inebriated. He says he wasn't, but he doesn't deny that he had a beer. So, how do you define drunk? A couple of things about this, and we'll throw this out to calls in just a minute. But a couple of other points on this. All right. One. Dale Kowenga. He's speaking, and he sounds perfectly intelligent. I mean, he's he's sharp as attack in the points that he's making. I mean, I I couldn't do sober what he was doing. I, I'll just say that in terms of the points that he was making. Two, this is where it gets interesting. So Patrick Marley, and I believe it was he who wrote this line, the story in the Journal Sentinel was written by Patrick Marley and Molly Beck. The story describes the speech patterns of Koenga in the video as slow and slurred, slow and slightly slurred cadence. I'm not hearing any slurring. And I told Patrick Marley that because I interviewed him for my story. And he said that he and I would have to disagree on that, and we do. Slow, yeah, maybe a little different than than Dale normally sounds, yes. So I I accept that. That we can debate on that. But I, I don't hear any slurring. Here's the thing, though. A source reached out to me and said, Hey, Patrick Marley, who wrote that story, he was there that day. If Dale Coenga was glaringly obviously drunk which is really the way Democrats are portraying this wouldn't Patrick have noticed that and wouldn't he have quickly reported on that hey Kowonga came back from across the street and he was drunk and he went up and he spoke but Patrick Marley didn't do any of that I asked him about that he didn't answer so I asked him again And he he gave a statement relative to other elements of the story. Asked him again, and he said, I don't want to respond to that question. As to whether or not he noticed that anything about Dale notable. And if if he did, why didn't he do a story back then? Or why didn't he go, hey, Dale, you've been drinking? Nothing like that. So now, because what Patrick Marley is doing is say, hey look, the video's out there, Schilling has said this. By the way, I'm not saying it isn't a story. What I am asking is how do we define drunk? The minute someone has a beer or let's say even two, which Dale Coenga is not saying happen. But if in any way it affects your behavior, are you drunk? because that's the allegation that's being made. If you have thoughts on this, love to hear them at the Acadent Mortgage Talk and Text Line 414-799-1620. 1216 News Radio WTMJ. 1218 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. The Acadent Mortgage Talk and Text Line 414-799-1620. State Representative Dale Coing insists he was not drunk, but doesn't. You know, they, he, they went across for a beer during a bomb scare. And we got a text on that. Chris from Waterford, if I had a beer at lunch, I don't think my boss would be happy and I could lose my job. You can raise the whole issue. And by the way, he wasn't alone. Dale wasn't alone and Democrats went. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily make it a smart idea. Perhaps they didn't know when they would get back to the Capitol after the bomb scare. I, I can see where it would happen. To Mark in Kenosha. Mark, hi, you're on WTMJ. Mark? Hello? Apparently, we do not have Mark, Kyle, so I guess we will go on. Uh, I thought I heard him breathing there. 414-799-1620. Have uh, another text on this. In my opinion, someone is drunk When their judgment and actions are clearly impaired by any bystander. A person having one beer, in my opinion, doesn't matter if I'm drunk under that definition. It does not matter. I don't know what he means if I'm drunk. Uh, Could one, okay, could one person appear impaired after one beer? I know an elected official that was stopped and. Police were convinced he was intoxicated, and he blew about a .02. So that's a valid point. To Bob in Madison. Bob, hi, you're on WTMJ.
1: Hey, how you doing today? Good. Good. Yeah, you know, I, I get a chance to walk the Capitol. Um, I'm kind of an activist, and I've known some of the legislators, and they're people just like you or I. Um, From what I am understanding, the big to-do over this has a lot to do with the fact that there was a bomb scare or something, and legislators crossed the street and somebody decided to socialize a little. Mm -hmm. The longer you're there, the greater likelihood that you're going to walk away with uh, alcohol in your breath, whatever the case is. So I look at it and I go, uh, if it would have been a Democrat, Um, there would have been people making comments about it from the right, and people obviously made comments about it and observations in Del Um, Yeah, it's, It's not too hard to recognize when somebody's been drinking. It's probably what was going on, you know. So I guess in that particular instance, it's not a big thing. It didn't, unless he was going to a vote, and I don't know all the specifics, it really doesn't seem to matter.
0: Bob, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Here's what I would say. If you look at the video, I do not consider Dale. Again, there are. this is a, a very squishy definition. There's buzzed. There's tipsy. There's drunk. And then there's terms for really drunk that I can't use on the radio. Dale certainly wasn't any of uh, of those latter ones. Now I don't see what Patrick Marley thinks he sees in the video, the slurring or here I guess I should say. I would I do agree with the texture though, Chris, that the judgment and again not just by Dale Coinga but anyone who did that. If you think you might be headed back to the Capitol for business, going across the street for a beer isn't a good idea. However, Dale seemed pretty much Dale. Again, he was very he spoke as articulately on budget issues as he always does. And and I do, you know, understanding that Jennifer Schilling and others know that Democrats went and did this too. If you have any thoughts on this, you need to get in soon because we have a guest that you are not going to want to miss at 1235. The Academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. Jerry, in for Jeff, 1223 News Radio, WTMJ. News Radio WTMJ. If you want to get in on this one, you need to get in like quickest because we are switching gears massively after 12.30. The Akinet Mortgage Talk and Text Line 414-799-1620 talking about the controversy. Was Dale Cohen got drunk when he came back from across the street after a bomb scare at the Capitol from a bar in 2015 and spoke on the state budget? To Larry in Woolworth. Larry, go ahead.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, just a minute.
0: Okay, Larry, we'll wait for you. I'm not going anywhere.
3: All right.
0: <laughs> uh,
3: yeah. hey. Okay, um, Larry. Yes, yeah. yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. I just pulled into my car dealership. Okay. Uh, yeah. Anyway, what I'm thinking was, I mean, what, what is uh, tipsy or drunk for one person would be different for another? Man, my size, 200 yep. two beers would be nothing. But you know someone else one year would be enough to be. Good for. But I really don't see why that uh, anybody else has a, a problem with it.
0: Uh, Larry, thanks a lot for the call. I, I don't I, I don't think it's wise in the middle of the day to go drinking if you think you might come back. Now, here is what may have happened, and I don't know the details on this part. It's possible all of the lawmakers involved who went and quote-unquote socialized thought maybe they weren't coming back, and I I don't know the answer to that. A couple of other texts on this. If having a beer constitutes being drunk, uh, founding fathers then were drunk all the time. So he had a beer for lunch. How long in between the beer, and did he go back to work? excellent question that is an excellent question don't have the answer to that they were sitting there for two or three hours and he ate lunch and had a beer with lunch i don't see why that's such a big deal i don't i don't know i mean that's an interesting scenario but i don't know that that's what happened i do know in looking at the video del colinga is completely coherent he is speaking on complex issues the way that he always does I would argue his voice does seem a bit different from what I'm used to. I disagree with the characterization by Patrick Marley that he's a a bit slurred. I just don't hear that. And And I don't think this is nitpickery on my part. I think it is interesting to note that Patrick Marley was there that day. And Patrick Marley does not want to comment on the record in terms of what he may have seen, what he may have noticed about Dale Coinga. So here's what I would say, absent any comment to that, of that nature by Patrick Marley. Let's just take an extreme example. If Dale Coinga came in in boxer shorts and a t-shirt, Patrick Marley would remember that, right? My point being this. If a difference is extreme enough, hey, you remember that time Coenca came in for crying out loud he was in his boxer shorts? Extreme, I get it. If he was visibly intoxicated, I think that would have passed the boxer short tests. I, I do. And I do find it hard to believe that Patrick Marley would not have seized upon that moment. By the way, I think any reporter would have, irrespective of the ideology of the party of the elected official. To me, that that just makes sense. Sam says this is just Democrats having a huge chip on their shoulder. Ah, they think Dale is vulnerable. That's what they think. They, they think that this is a pickup that they might be able to get with Leah running for the U.S. Senate. That is, in fact, what they think. All right. 1235-ish. We are going to have a guest who's an author and co-producer of the book and movie Gosnell. It is about abortion doctor and serial killer Kermit Gosnell. You may or you may not know that there is a movie out. It came out last week, and it's actually doing pretty well at the box office, despite the fact no one in the media wants to say anything about it, and that they are actually being boycott or censored. Some advertising platforms won't let them advertise. We're going to talk... With the co-producer of that movie coming up at about 12.35. Manny Machado's antics in the NLCS have clearly gotten under the skin of the Brewers and their fan base. But is now really the time to retaliate? Matt Pauley is in for Greg Masick and he'll open the discussion on Brewers tonight at 7.07. 12.36 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff Wagner. Let me set this up, and I want to do this relatively quickly because we have a guest waiting on the phone. In May 2013, a jury found Kermit Gosnell guilty in the murder of three babies that had been born alive at his Philadelphia abortion clinic, the Women's Medical Society. According to the grand jury report, Gosnell killed them by severing their spinal cords with scissors. Investigators also discovered refrigerators full of aborted fetuses in his offices. He was also convicted of involuntary manslaughter, 21 felony counts of illegal late-term abortion, and 211 counts of violating an informed consent law. Gosnell was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Despite the horrific nature of Gosnell's crimes, many Americans are largely unaware of them, or even unaware of Gosnell himself, and that may be you. Uh, that's because national media refused to cover the trial until they were shamed into doing so. And the media continues to shun the story today. Even though it's facing censorship by some media outlets across the country, the motion picture Gosnell, the trial of America's biggest serial killer, made its way to the top ten of movies in the country on its opening weekend, according to the website Box Office Mojo. The film chronicles a true life horror story that went almost ignored by politicians and the mainstream media. Landed at number 10 spot on Friday and Saturday, falling back to number 12. Fellow McAleer and his wife, Ann McAleany, the movie's producers, reported the film's success in a statement to the Daily Signal website. We are the number one independent movie of the weekend, number five per screen average across the U.S., McAleer also said. And fellow McAleer joins us now on the phone. Fellow, th- uh, thanks a lot for joining us.
4: Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's great to be on.
0: All right, let's start with uh, censorship. This movie is facing both in terms of media coverage and attempts to advertise it. Phelan, what are you facing?
4: Oh, I mean, it just it just gets worse and worse. You know, uh, it's, 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 you know from the very beginning this film has, has faced. Barriers. I mean, Kickstarter wouldn't let us crowdfund for it, uh, and then, you know, then Facebook has banned almost fifty of our ads. Uh, NPR wouldn't let us advertise. We, we, you know, so, it, and then, you know, no mainstream media outlets will review us. We've had two. Uh, so, Beautiful Boy, which is a movie about opioid addiction, came out at the same time, hasn't done as well. it's seventy reviews. We've had two reviews. Uh, and t- the two reviews aren't particularly mainstream. Uh, yeah. So the mainstream media wants to cover this up. They don't want the story out there. They want to keep this story a secret. Uh,
0: t- also, uh, despite that blackout, though, as we just mentioned, you still had a very f- good opening weekend. What do you attribute that to? How are people
2: finding it?
4: Well, you know, the alternative media, social media, outlets such as yourself, are, are talking about this. Uh, and you know, and listen, people people have, have just decided that they don't need mainstream media anymore, they want to go around them, And uh, they're finding out about it themselves, email networks, we did a lot of pre-screenings. We got the word out. Don't forget, this was crowdfunded also, so 30,000 people. 30,000 people helped make this movie possible, So they're, they're obviously going to yeah They're obviously cutting the plan. So that's the really news.
0: Let's talk about some of the criticism the movie is facing. NBCnews.com published an opinion piece claiming it's a stretch to call Gosnell a serial killer because he was convicted in just three deaths. I'll let you answer to that. But if you read anything about the grand jury's report, you know how preposterous that is.
4: Yeah, the well, grand jury themselves said he probably killed hundreds. Really, he killed five. Um, you know, he was at this for thirty years. For seventeen years, uh, no one had inspected his clinics. Nobody, the Department of Health, had inspected the clinics. So, um, you know, so he, he was—he he was killing on travels, on uninterrupted for seventeen years that we know of. Uh, you know, and by the way, that was a Republican governor, a pro-choice Republican yep. governor. Who, who decided to ban and stop the uh, investigations or the inspections of the of the of the abortion clinics in Pennsylvania? So you know, you know this. It's a joke to say that he's not America's biggest serial killer. He's America. He's probably the world's biggest serial killer
0: by far. And when when again, when you look at the numbers, and just another point on that. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, film, He also kept trophies, did he not? The way serial killers are known to do.
4: Yeah, yeah, he kept serial killers. He, uh, he, he, uh, I'm sorry, he kept so, he, he cut the feet of babies and put them in jars, nicely labeled them. He would keep mementos in, in, in plastic bags. He was a hoarder as well. His house was like seen from hoarders. Uh, he, you know, he's a disturbed individual. Although we, myself and my wife, we met him in prison. He's a charismatic, disturbed individual. You know, he has a superficial charm. He's educated. He's well-spoken. He's relaxed, demeanor, you know, uh, slightly detached. Um, uh, a deeply, deeply dangerous individual.
0: We are talking with Phelan McAleer, uh, producer of the movie Gosnell. Phelan, at the end of the segment, I'm actually going to tell people where they can see it in Wisconsin. Could you possibly just hang on for a few minutes and stay with us one more segment? Is that possible?
4: No, problem. Well, excellent. Oh. I want to tell people it's not gory. They can go and see it PG-13. Uh,
0: we will share that. Just don't go anywhere, Phelan. We'll talk to you again in, in, in a couple of minutes. 1242 News Radio, WTMJ. The Brewers continue to take a shot at the World Series. Which unsung hero has the best chance of helping the team get there? John Mercure and Greg Matzik explore at 434 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. We are talking with Bellum McAleer, author, co-producer of the movie Gosnell, about Kermit Gosnell. Uh, And and I want to turn now, Bellum, to... You know, I have, uh, someone in my life, 23 years old. I asked her if she'd ever heard of Kermit Gosnell, No, no clue until I told her the story. She texted her mom. to so ask your mom. Has she ever heard of this person? Nope. It's shock. And then when they hear the story, they're shocked they don't know about it. It was because of the media blackout. Because of that, and I know your goal here is to get the, the word out about this. Did uh, director Nick Searcy or, or you or anyone ever consider doing a documentary versus a story narrative movie?
4: You know, uh, yeah. I mean, our background is documentaries, and we and we wrote the book, uh, Gosnell: The Story of America's Most prolific Serial Killer. So, it's a it's a book, um, but we felt, you know, to get this story over to the maximum audience possible, a movie is the best thing. I mean, a documentary has less leg. Uh This people will sit down and watch it. It's a crime story, and that's what I want to emphasize. It's not gory, It's not a horror show even though it does touch on some pretty awful stuff. Uh, It's PG-13. And take a look at what people are saying on Twitter about it. Everyone loves it. Everyone says they bring their teenage children to it. And it leads to some very, very interesting conversations in the car on the way home. So we wanted to make a movie. We wanted to make it accessible. It's PG-13, and I think we achieved that.
0: Huffington Post published a piece from an abortion doctor where he made the case you're attempting to make him and all other abortion doctors... A purist crimit Gosnell. What would your response to that be?
4: Well I'm not but I'll tell you one thing. The big problem the jury has in the courtroom was distinguishing between what Kermit Giles now did and what an abortion doctor does. And, you know, because they were, it was capital murder, he was taking, you know, death. And what he was doing, he was killing babies born alive. But then they had a good abortion doctor who was who was gave evidence know, the proper abortion doctor. And she was asked, he was asked, what happened if the baby's born alive? And he said, well, we would give it comfort care. And everyone's going, what's comfort care? And it turns out comfort care is where you set the baby aside, cover it in a blanket, keep it warm, and as the doctor says, eventually it will pass. And it's like, what's the difference there between killing the baby and letting it die of starvation and dehydration? Uh, you mm-hmm. know? So they're doing a good job of making themselves look like No, I don't need to help.
0: Talking with Phelan McAleer. He is co-producer and author of the book that it's based on, uh, Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. We would be remiss, Phelan, if we did not point out, I mean, yes, he killed uh, almost countless babies, but women were harmed and died as well. The grand jury details this in a section titled Butcher of Women. Talk about that.
4: So, sorry, what was that, sir?
0: The talk about the way it's not the victims weren't just babies; women were harmed as well.
4: Oh yeah, well that's it. I mean, that, you know, and and you know that's it. The, 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 he he he. He killed women. Uh, let's be honest about it. When he, when, when Tom Ridge, a Republican governor, said we don't look at abortion clinics anymore, the bodies of women started piling up. He, you know, and and what women? You know, Karnamaya mongor was a was a Nepalese refugee. Spent twenty years a genuine refugee. Spent twenty years in a refugee camp. Came to America for the American dream. Was here four months and she lay dead in got of abortion clinic. And only a cop uh, a hero cop was investigating gosno for selling drugs uh, and he went he heard with his death and he went to look at the police report no police report he thought this is weird this is a cover-up no Karen of was was a refugee a person of color a woman uh uh who died in a sanctuary city uh, in 20 in the 21st century You know, there was no sanctuary for this woman in the sanctuary city. When it comes to refugees and women and all these things, people of color, they don't matter when it comes to abortion. Abortion must be protected at all costs. And that's that's the lesson of Gosnell. Abortion is a sacred sacrament to some, and they are going to protect it even if the bodies pile up.
0: Phelan McAleer, uh, tell you what, we're going to part ways, Phelan, but before I end this half hour, I'm going to tell them where in Wisconsin... They can find the movie. So I really appreciate you taking some time with us today.
4: Thank you. Thank you. It's on gosnowmovie.com as well. But thank you. Uh, we need people to turn up. You can't go by and take a send a to Hollywood and the mainstream media. The cover-up stops here.
0: Right, Phelan, thanks again. Appreciate you uh, checking in with us today. I will share the theaters, not just in the Milwaukee area, but around Wisconsin, where you can find this movie. We'll do that in just a couple of minutes. 1250 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Baderin for Jeff Wagner. Just a minute, I'm going to tell you where in Wisconsin you can find the movie about Kermit Gosnell. And it's interesting because I guarantee there are a fair number of people, I can't tell you how many, just listened to the interview with Bella McAleer, producer, author of the book upon which it's based, and had never heard the story or barely heard anything about it. Because it was framed by the media as an abortion story, and they're not going to touch that. These babies were born alive. As uh, Ed Morrissey at HotAir.com puts it, they were squiggling, squirming babies. Hundreds of them. And Kermit Gosnell took forceps and snapped their spinal cord at the neck. That's what he did. Over and over and over. And people do need to know this story, because it wasn't told by the media the first time, and the media is trying desperately not to tell it this time. And Phelim alluded to it. This happened only because he was also, um, Kermit Gosnell was also illegally selling opioids. And that's how he got busted. They, they raided his, his office, his clinic, for that reason, and then found a house of horrors. So where can you find this movie? Uh, Let's start with, uh, in the relative area here, Marcus Ridge Cinema, 5200 South Moreland Road, New Berlin, Marcus Hillside Cinema, uh, 2950 Hillside Drive, Delafield, AMC Mayfair, 2500 Mayfair Road, North Mayfair Road, Wauwatosa, Johnson Creek, AMC Classic, 420 Village Walk Lane. Up in my neck of the woods, Green Bay. Marcus Green Bay East Cinema. That's on the east side of Green Bay off of I-43. AMC Classic, 1301 Wisconsin Dells Parkway South, Lake Delton in the Dells area. Marcus Hollywood Cinema. 513 Northwest Hill Boulevard. That's you folks in Appleton. Marcus Sheboygan. Cinema. 3226 Kohler Memorial Drive, and then, uh, I'm not sure of the name of the theater, it doesn't matter, 3100 Deerfield Drive in Janesville. Also, you can find that entire list at gosnellmovie.com. This is one of the most, uh, I don't know if dramatic is the right word, stories of, of an attempt of at the media to stifle a story. I say this repeatedly, and I just think it bears repeating. When we talk about media bias, every media has bias. Because human beings have bias. And to suggest that there isn't at least some degree of bias inherent in just about every news story is off the charts idealistic. Humans are humans, and they will apply their biases. One of the most effective biases is bias by omission. What you're not told. What they choose. And when I say they, those gatekeepers who have a platform that's widely viewed, read, or listened to, they decide what you are going to read, what you are going to see, and what you are going to hear. And more importantly, what you are not going to. That's what happened back in twenty. I don't, 2012, somewhere between 2010 and 2012, when Gosnell was arrested. There is a scene in the movie, which I have not seen, but I intend to. I saw the trailer, though, and I remember this clearly, and I remember the conservative media lighting this up. The video of the chairs reserved for the media, and they're empty, and they've got signs on them reserved for media. Seat after seat, row after row. I mean, the. Yeah. Any reasonable person would have expected that this story was going to just have massive nationwide, worldwide coverage. But it was an abortion story in the eyes of the media and not a mass murder, serial killer story, which is exactly what it was. And there's a scene in the movie where the prosecutor is warned, "Uh, you're going to be mobbed by the media, just beware. And then they see all the empty seats. They're like, what? Where is everybody? That did happen. You know, others, there is artistic license taken and other things. That did happen. All right. Coming up after 1 o'clock, I want to revisit the To Kill a Mockingbird story. I know that Steve talked about this uh, this morning. I want to revisit it. I took over an hour's worth of calls when I tackled this last week, and there's just, I think, a very specific, important takeaway from that story that needs to be discussed. So we will do that after 1 o'clock. It is 12.59 News Radio WTMJ. Yes, I do think it's as simple as the Brewers' bats getting hot, but what do I know? <sighs> Two in a row. Only two in a row. 109, Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. Going to talk Brewers a little later uh, in this hour. I, I, here's the bad feeling I do have, though. That 13-inning loss. I, I really believe that that the series could come down to that. They win that. It's just a whole different situation. Coming back to Milwaukee. Needing to take just what. Uh, uh. Uh, I know, you could point to all sorts of different moments. I haven't given up. Uh, not, you know, you're know, you going back home. Now they are a tough, tough team to beat at Miller Park. But mm, they need to score more runs. I understand the otherwise stellar bullpen has had a few moments. But boy, you got, you got to put some runs on the board. You have to do that. A little more on that later in the show. Last week... I was on WTMJ, and we took up the topic of Sherwood High School's production of To Kill a Mockingbird, called off. You have not heard this story. If you're thinking of that story, this is a new development, which you likely have heard throughout the morning. I know Steve talked about it. We took over an hour of calls on that last week. This, I believe, is uh, this is all over the place. I just randomly picked Fox 6's story. Shorewood High School's production of To Kill a Mockingbird was called off Wednesday, October 17th. Not last week. Just days after it was revived. A 17-year-old boy from Shorewood was taken into custody after a threatening message was posted on social media related to the show. However... The superintendent at Sherwood said, that's that's not why we did this. Well, that's interesting. There was a threat, but yet they're saying the threat in and of itself isn't why they canceled it. The controversy surrounding the show involves a racial slur in the script and an intense few days in the district. Well, the racial slur is the N-word. The N-word is uttered in that play. The most important priority has been for the social and emotional welfare of our students, said Superintendent Brian Davis. Right now, it's kind of a mess around Shorewood, said Fiona Hetzel, student. Hetzel is a member of the Shorewood High School Theater Department. There's obviously a lot of opinions going on right now. It makes sense. It's a big issue, she said. The school production of To Kill a Mockingbird was canceled again Wednesday Hours after a tense community discussion Tuesday night. Some said the literary classic should have been performed uncensored. There are those in the community who said, look, we don't want it canceled, but we don't think that you should use that word. Well, here's the thing. The way the play is licensed by the estate of Harper Lee, you, you can't alter it. You can't change it. By the way, that is entirely common. My, my wife, who's been in a number of live stage productions, said that right away. She so said, so you can't mess with it. It's, it's, you present it as it's licensed, and that's the way it is. That is the way. It, that wasn't an option. So you were left with two options. The show must go on, or you cancel they initially chose to cancel. They then seemingly did the right thing, in my opinion. In my opinion, what is the right thing? And said, all right, we're going to put this on only one show, but that's fine. So they had the community meeting, and then it was supposed to go on last night, and then apparently they also considered doing basically a closed performance for family, that sort of thing, and then decided against even that. They felt that if they move forward with the dress rehearsal, they would lose the original message they were to convey by performing the play said Superintendent Davis so ultimately the if you will the heckler's veto one here that that's what happened whatever they said it's not the threat I don't know it's a, it is one heck of a coincidence in my opinion but there is let me see if I can find this here um, here. This quote, I think, is important and telling. The ordeal prompted Milwaukee's original Black Panthers to speak out Wednesday evening. Racism, oppression, injustice, and inequality has no place in our community, said King Rick with the original Black Panthers. Racism, oppression, injustice, and inequality has no place in our community. So then we shouldn't explore the past. We shouldn't discuss the past. I know this is hardly an original thought, but that is how the past gets repeated. I think that's entirely a dangerous if, if that if King Rick thinks they won because the district was intimidated, And I think to a degree, whatever the district says, I think there is at least some truth to that. Davis said in the future, students' opinions will be taken into consideration, so something like this doesn't happen again. With all due respect and apologies, Superintendent Davis, you are never going to accomplish that. Someone will... Someone will find something to be offended about no matter what you do. And I continue to be where I was on this a week ago. I think canceling again. I, I mean, I try to be charitable, I guess, to the, to the Sherwood School, to the district. They have botched this. I, I mean, I, I'm sorry, but this was handled very, very, very badly and what uh, you know he think so this doesn't happen again in the future something was canceled because it offended people superintendent davis that they have chalked up a huge victory and they'll find something else to be offended about if you think you're going to figure out how to, to avoid this in the future it's never going to happen and yes this is situational offensiveness white people not even actors on a stage can apparently say the n word and I said this last week, the incredible irony here, that the book, To Kill a Mockingbird, was pivotal, instrumental, in the civil rights movement. It truly was. And now, it is considered racist. I, I If we are going to be afraid to use words that were once acceptable, but now aren't, to show that they were once not acceptable, or once were acceptable and now aren't. Uh, Then we're in big trouble. And yes, the problem a lot of people have is, as I said, the situational offensiveness of this, where some people can use use it in song, or the black community can say it to one another, and that's different. The word they claim isn't offensive In that context, it also shouldn't be offensive in terms of in a play that is set in the 1930s in the Deep South where that word got used all the time. And I just think that this is and other schools, in fact, have banned the book. And I think this is just another step toward intellectual intolerance. I can say I'm offended, and it has to go away. Like most doors, that door won't stay just a little bit open. Have a couple of texts on this. If you want to weigh in on this, you certainly can as well. I know there's been a lot of talk about it, but if you want to take one more swing at it, the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. 118 News Radio WTMJ. 120 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. Don't have a lot of time on this one. If you want to get in on the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line 414-799-1620. I think the big takeaway from the Shorewood High Mockingbird. Here, by the way, the irony. To kill a mockingbird, Shorewood did that three times. If you think about it. The original production the second production, and then the dress rehearsal. I Just the irony there, so thick you could cut it with a knife. But I think the true danger here is when you have someone saying racism, oppression, injustice, and inequality, none of that is present when this... None of it... Okay, let me rephrase that. None of that is done to the audience... And if it shocks the audience's sensibilities, then it actually has done its job. Because at this late date, now it's different than the, the purpose and the reasoning that Harper Lee had when she wrote the book. But at this late date, it's important to put in context where we were. Uh, let's see. Boy, we've got a, a lot of texts on this. Uh, Jerry, don't expect any school administrator to be able to think today. They are educated and, oh, wow. I See, I don't know that I, I don't agree with that, really, that part. Regarding the Sherwood play, do we now remove books about the Civil War, the gas chambers in Germany, World War II? That's exactly, that's, that is exactly right. If history offends, so we turn a blind eye to it, then we forget history. To Kathy in Racine. Kathy, uh, you're on WTMJ.
1: Good afternoon. Hi. I believe it's pure, unadulterated censorship. It could have been an educational experience for the kids nowadays. They have no idea. I mean, even anybody under 50
2: has no idea how bad
0: racism used to be. Now, here's the thing. Okay, that, by the way, that is exactly the point. You're exactly right. Is you have to, And why that's important, Kathy, is there are people who think we've made no progress, both blacks and whites, who think that it's still 1955, which is why it is important to see this. That's a, a really good point on your part. And as to censorship, let's remember the school is, in fact, government. And governments can can censor, and and I just think they got this exactly wrong. Thanks a lot for the call. I, I think she makes a very good point on that. But her her really good point was: look, you have to know how bad it was, and that and I've said this, uh, you know, I've said this for years. I think there is about half of the country. That thinks Jim Crow was 200 years ago and not just, you know, 55-ish some years ago that it ended. And then there are some who think it never ended. There are some who believe that there has been precious little racial progress since the 1950s and 1960s. That isn't true. Is this a perfect world? No, it sure is not. But that's not true. And putting this in context is important, and it does not qualify as racism, oppression, injustice, and inequality to the community. What it's putting on display is the racism, oppression, injustice, and equality as it existed nearly 90 years ago in America. And, and she was exactly, the caller was exactly right. If you don't have that context, you can't understand the progress that was made. 125 News Radio WTMJ. The Brewers and Dodgers return to Milwaukee as the NLCS continues. Gene Miller goes behind enemy lines to see what the atmosphere is like in L.A. That's 721 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. All right. Just to finish up on this uh, on this topic, and tell you, let me tell you what we're going to do in the next half hour. President Trump coming to Central Wisconsin, Moosonee, next week, basically to rally. Uh, Governor Walker will be there. Leah Vukmir, of course, will be there. U.S. Senate candidate. I had mentioned on the air earlier that there are those who don't know if it's a fabulous idea to have Governor Walker associate himself with President Trump. I see arguments on both sides. I think Leah Vukmir, it's pretty obvious. She embraced, figuratively speaking, President Trump during the primary. And I I don't know if the numbers are real in, in terms of how far down she is in the polls. But I just don't know... If she has much of a choice, I want to share one more text. She has no choice, and and she just has to energize the base. I want to be clear on that. Uh, I want to share one more text on this, on the Mockingbird topic. We have made great progress against racism, of course, but to ignore gerrymandering, redlining, racial profiling, and more is a disservice to Americans. There are still issues. I am I'm not saying that there aren't still race issues in America. However, I think without the historic context, historical context, the texter says we've made great progress against racism. Of course, not everybody sees it that way. And again, this is irrespective of white or persons of color. There are a lot of people in America... Who simply do not understand how far in the last 50 years we've come, President Obama addressed this at one point and said, "Look, you know, any black man growing up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s will tell you how far we've come." And one of the great ways to do that is put on what's considered an American masterpiece to display, to illustrate what was acceptable, what was the norms. The norms were racism, oppression, injustice, and inequality. How should the United States respond to the death of a journalist in Turkey? Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher has some strong thoughts. He joins John Mercure live at 334 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. This is right in Congressman Gallagher's wheelhouse. I know him well. 8th District Congressman, and that is the guy that you want to talk to on this issue. So you're not going to want to miss that 334. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. By the way, it's 134. I was letting you know that that's at 334. So I received a note from a friend who said, Jerry, what do you make of this? I don't know that I have an answer. Well, I kind of have an answer. But I don't have a complete answer. What is this? A story that broke earlier today, the Wisconsin State Journal. Molly Beck also has a story at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And, of course, the WTMJ Newsroom also has the story. Fourth former Scott Walker administration official blasts the governor ahead of election. A fourth official in Governor Scott Walker's, former official in Governor Scott Walker's administration, has publicly denounced the governor as he seeks a third term this time quitting his six-figure job to do so which this is this is pretty stunning Paul Jaden the first CEO of the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation resigned from his position as president of the Madison Region Economic partnership yesterday, according to the Wisconsin State Journal, which first published a letter Jaden signed, along with two other former Walker officials, blasting the governor. According to the Madison newspaper, that is the State Journal, Jaden said the resignation was necessary to avoid entangling the agency with his political activity. So a $200,000 a year job, he walks away. Uh, Let's see, in the letter, uh, he, former Department of Corrections Secretary Ed Wall, and former Department of Financial Institution Secretary Peter Bildstein, the former uh, Walker official's urge voters to support Democrat Tony Evers for governor because Walker's administration lacked integrity. We were proud to lead the way on some of his bold initiatives in our state agencies, the three wrote. That pride evaporated at various times for each of us as we found ourselves disagreeing with both policy and practices when the administration uh, within the administration that lacked integrity. It became clear that his focus was not on meeting his obligations to the public, but to advancing his own political career at a tremendous cost to taxpayers and and families. I mean this is this is bombshellish that Jaden would do this at least on the surface. There's potentially things we don't know. But we do know at this point is it's not we have no reason to believe the job he had was in jeopardy and that he's actually surrendering this job to make this statement. That's what we that's what we know at this point. The former official said they will not be voting for Walker because of his record on transportation, education, and safety issues, pervasive, questionable practices within the administration, and how state matters were handled while Walker sought the presidency. Governor Scott Walker has faced criticism for pretty much leaving no one at the wheel During his 2015 presidential bid, I know the election was 2016, but Governor Walker essentially was in the race in 2015. All of us have witnessed how job preservation and the cyber call of higher office have influenced the governor's approach to conducting business in Madison. The three wrote, during the recall in 2012, he stopped attending cabinet meetings and delegated state business to his chief of staff and DOA, Department of Administration secretary. When he decided to run for president in 2015, he subordinated Wisconsin interests to those in Iowa and New Hampshire, and his policy budget proposals started to clash with members of his own party who still would have to stand for election in Wisconsin. Well, none of that is scandalous. I mean, the way they describe it there, that at least that last part, Walker's former Transportation Secretary, Mark Gottlieb, also said earlier this year that the GOP governor isn't telling the truth about road projects and is taking a high-risk gamble that could see the state invest billions of dollars in obsolete highways. And there are those who fired back on Gottlieb saying that his tenure was the problem. Gottlieb, a Republican who was in the Assembly for eight years, said Walker has been increasingly inaccurate when describing the state's highway system, but did not say he would vote for Evers in November. Austin Altenberg, the uh, spokesman for Walker, did not address these claims in the letter, uh, those claims that are in the letter, but suggested Jaden was to blame for problems at the state's job agency, which has been under scrutiny since its creation. That certainly did uh, seem to be the appearance that it was Paul Jaden who had issues there at the WEDC. It lost track of millions of dollars in loans carried over from the State Department. Uh, it replaced and awarded loans to businesses not properly vetted, which failed to create jobs, or repaid what was borrowed in some cases. In fact, there was the big scandal with the guy up from Green Bay. Uh, so, Jaden and the others, the latest to come out, and just really, really come after Walker. Evers has proposed eliminating WEDC if elected and replace it with the State Department of Commerce, which was disbanded when Walker was elected. Britt Cuddeback, spokeswoman for Evers, said Jaden absolutely did not seek nor was offered a job within an Evers administration should Evers be elected. Scott Walker's disastrous record as a career politician is bringing people together all on its own, she said. This is is bombshellish. There's no doubt about that. Now, the quick response to this is a bunch of disgruntled former employees. There's certainly a potential element to that. Jaden, however, seems to be making perhaps the most stark statement by walking away. What impact will this have on the election? I don't know. Does this fall into the wonkish category where most voters don't really hear it, or that it really doesn't impact voters who have already made up their mind? I don't know. Minus answer is I don't know. But that does transition to our next conversation. What impact will President Trump coming to Wisconsin next week, campaigning for Republicans, what impact will that have? One forty-two News Radio WTMJ. The Brewers are on the brink, and now the series shifts back to Milwaukee. The crew trail three games to two in the best of seven NLCS. Need two wins now at Miller Park to advance to the World Series. Hall of Famer Bob Uecker on the call. Our coverage of Game 6 starts 6 o'clock Friday night. It's a... Ugh, boy. Man. That thir- I, I just keep thinking of that 13th inning. That 13-inning game. <sighs> That just feels like the one. But heres uh, I'm still optimistic they can win two at home, but I'm realistic it is going to be tough. Uh, yeah, final thoughts, because it, uh, Texter makes a really good point. The people who are coming out ripping Walker, former within his administration. Ed Wall was heavily, heavily, excuse me. Criticized. In fact, Scott Walker was criticized by conservatives for not doing something about the problems and corrections when Ed Wall was there. Jaden was at the helm when early on, after its creation, the WEDC went off the rails. I'm just saying. You, you, you do have to look at the performance, or at least what we were told about the performance of those people. It sounds, I I mean, the the shots that they're taking, incredibly, I I guess, personal is the way that I would say it. That Scott Walker was self-absorbed with political advancement. In the letter, they give a few examples, but not a lot of specifics. But it's definitely clear they have an axe to grind. Again, final analysis, I, I don't know. I don't know what impact this has. On the race, the race is razor close, and this type of criticism might already be baked into the cake. Which brings me to this: you have likely heard President Donald Trump is returning to Wisconsin October 24th to rally Republicans ahead of the midterm election. He is uh, going to be—he's going to headline. I believe it was the Journal Sentinel reported it that way, a campaign event at Central Wisconsin Airport in Mosinee. That's in the Wausau area. Governor Scott Walker, Republican U.S. Senate candidate Leah Vukmir, will appear alongside the president, which is not a surprise at all. I asked a Republican insider, who I said I would not name, I asked his opinion, so what do you think? Because I happen to know that in Republican circles, those who work to get people elected, there's a lot of debate over whether it would help or hurt Governor Walker to be seen campaigning with President Trump. Let me take these one at a time. I I don't know if Leah Vukmir really is trailing Tammy Baldwin by 10 points. I, I do think that Baldwin has a comfortable lead. I don't know that Leah Vukmir has anything to lose. The concern is, in areas of Wisconsin there are pockets that went for Trump that normally didn't and there could be buyer's remorse by some of those particularly, and we've heard it a million times the college educated white suburban woman I I just, at this point whatever the numbers showing internally or public polls I I just don't know that Leah Vukmir has anything to lose and, in fact, we know this. President Trump does energize the conservative Trump base, or what was once the conservative base is now the Trump base. That he, he does that. But is it offset by those that he off-puts? In, in that race, I, I, you know, I'm not saying she's desperate, but definitely time grows short, and she is trailing. Governor Walker is clearly in just a real battle here. And this is where it does get a little more, and the the Republican insider friend that I spoke with said it gets dicier because Governor Walker certainly needs that base to be riled up and excited and motivated, and President Trump does that, but he does also alienate, especially in that sliver area, that Governor Walker's going to need to win. This is going I, I, I think this race is just about a statistical tie, the governor's race, and I think it's going to end up that way on election day. I think it's going to be very, very, very close. What my friend did point out, and I think this is a good point, is Mozanie is the perfect place for this. It is, it actually, it's, it's, you get up in that part of the state, that is where President Trump did exceedingly well in 2016. And for any number of reasons, it's a good fit. It's a good place for this rally. The thing that you always have to guard against here is the president does tend to make these things more about himself than the people on the ballot in that state. You've seen this in other states, and you've heard those at least one of those Republicans complain about it. It's like, hey, you want to at least say my name, Mr. President? This is the president's wheelhouse. This is where he truly enjoys it. And it, it does tend to be a lot about him. That doesn't necessarily, I mean, that just limits the effectiveness for the for the various candidates, the Republican candidates on the ballot. And we are never going to truly be able to measure the impact that it has overall on the race because we're just, we're just not going to know. All right. I want to take a completely different direction. In the next hour, I'm going to talk about something. I just find, here's the interesting. This is something that's out in society these days that doesn't bug me, doesn't bother me. I didn't give it a second thought. Someone else is really bugged and bothered by it, and now I have second thoughts. I'll give you a taste of what it is in a few minutes here. One fifty-three News Radio WTMJ. One fifty-five. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. I'm about to say something I cannot prove. It's just gut. It. It's total gut. I think Republicans are getting killed. On the pre-existing condition issue, I think, and I am referencing the Tammy Baldwin ad, you may have just heard, a few moments ago. I I just, I think the messaging, and I have, I asked Governor Walker about this in an interview uh, Sunday evening. So, do do you think that you're answering that bell as Republicans, not just the governor, but all the, in the governor's race, House races, Senate races, I feel Republicans are getting creamed on that issue. I think it's resonating. And for everything else out there, I think it could be a difference maker. Now, the only way we'll know for sure is if Democrats end up not having a big night. And Governor Walker's response to that was, well, it's this national concerted effort. Well, well, it is, absolutely. And I just, I think it is... (laughs) incredibly effective. I think the ads I've seen on it are very effective. And I think they just somehow, some way, Republicans in the time left are going to have to try to I don't know. Try to try to fight it somehow, some way. But I don't think they've been doing so successfully thus far. And time runs short. In the next hour, we're going to get away from politics. We're going to get away from the heavy lifting, heavy duty topics. Let me just set this up. Let me give you a whiff of the cork, as it were, and then we'll pour the glass in the next hour. When I get good service, I tip big. That wasn't always the case. And had a former employee. In Green Bay, that's all you're leaving for a tip. This is many, many, many years ago, like 15 some years. Uh, not quite, but between 10 and 15 years ago. I don't remember what it was, but he thought it was insufficient. I know, especially excellent service, I tip really big. I mean, I do. I know how the system works in America. And I know that if you are good at being staff, And if you're going to make money, then you should be rewarded for that excellence. What about when someone hands you a cup of coffee? Are you supposed to tip? Specifically, someone writing in the Wall Street Journal is talking about, and I don't know if you've encountered this, but I'm guessing you have. I have. Where now they use an iPad that's on the swivel thing. And they run it up and then they turn it around for you to finish processing and they conveniently have three tipping options there for you. The guy behind you in line, he's going to like, really dude, you said no tip? Boy, what kind of jerk are you? Are they trying to shame you into tipping? And is that how it should work? want to get your thoughts on this because I have to be totally candid. I would just say, all right, fine. What's another buck on my cup of coffee? But now Jennifer Levitz writing in the Wall Street Journal has me thinking. We'll see if she has you thinking. We'll get to that after 2 o'clock. One fifty nine News Radio, WTMJ. Yeah. 2.08 Hour 3, Jerry Baderin for Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Melissa's news there. She talked about the uh, Saudi Arabia uh, still denying involvement in the suspected killing of a dissident Saudi journalist. I want to get to that before the end of this hour. We are going to talk about that. But we start here. Why wouldn't we start here? This is where we are, right? I mean, we're going to start with what I'm about to tell you about. Sorry, you don't get a 20% tip just for handing me a muffin. This in this morning's Wall Street Journal. Touchscreens make gratitudes awkward. Gratuities awkward. Public uh, makes them awkward public affairs. I'll look away now. Mina Dimion frequents a Stanford, Connecticut cafe where she orders a cup of strong coffee for $3. It comes with a splash of guilt. The clerk swipes Mr. Dimion's credit card and then swivels the store's white iPad around. Then, in an uncomfortable pause, uh, there's an uncomfortable pause. Prompts on the screen ask the 33-year-old human resources recruiter to sign his name and pick a tip. 18 percent, 20 percent, 25 percent, custom amount, or no tip. It's so awkward, says Mr. Dimion, who taps 20 percent you press the middle button so you don't look cheap to the people behind you in line i have had this experience i mean it's pretty bo- you know if there's a long line just about everybody's going to be able to see what you tipped and i have always struggled with the whole concept of tipping someone at a counter that way why is it different for food than it is ...for another product where you just go up to the counter and pay for it. Now, there's a tip jar at the place I'm thinking of. There's one in particular place. There's a tip jar, but it's just the way they described it here. Consumer space, that disconcerting ritual at bakeries, coffee shops, food trucks... ...and other businesses that use tablet credit card readers such as Square. The devices often ask customers to make tipping decisions on the fly with the person who just served them looking on, along with everyone else waiting in line. It guilts you into it, said Tom Kenny, a patron at Squeeze Juice Company in Boston on a recent morning. It absolutely does, because they're standing there. You want to make them happy. Well, they are. I mean, they're, they're, they're looking right at you. And how much are you going to tip? Dude, I'm right here. I can see you. It made me somewhat uncomfortable, but I just, this all right, fine. I'll, I'll go with the middle tip, which is 20%. What the heck? It's a 2 $3 cup of coffee. What's 20% going to do to me? I never really thought about it in this context. We got a couple of texts on this even before, you know, just when I teased it before the news. One says, you know, I'm the same as you. When I get a haircut, yeah, I'd leave a tip anyway. But when I have three options in my face and the hairstylist staring at me, I feel pressure to hit max tip. Uh, Jake in Caledonia, we live in an entitlement world. Servers assume they automatically get a tip. No, you get tipped on the quality of your service. You go above and beyond. I will leave a really nice cash tip. Average service gets an average tip. Poor service gets no tip or very little. Does this bug you or not? Or is this one of those things where people are making, is she in the Wall Street Journal making too big a deal out of this? Or have you felt like, all right, I'm being shamed into a tip I wouldn't otherwise give, which is, at least to me, counter to the whole point of a tip, tipping for excellence. If you have any thoughts on this, uh, you can give us a call at the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and text line. And by the way, if you're in a industry where you benefit from this, we would love to hear your side of the story. 414 799 1620. 414 799 1620. 213 News Radio WTMJ. 215 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. Tipping has always been problematic for me. And this story in the Wall Street Journal where now they have the iPad, And they flip it, and you have a choice of three tips. Uh, They talk with John Velez, a clerk at Squeeze, says he can't stand to watch the ritual play out. After he turns the tablet around to the customer, he averts his eyes. I feel so weird, said Mr. Velez, 31. We feel like we are pushing you to give tips. I would, well, yeah, because the person serving you can see it. The people behind line can see it to Liz in Delavan. Liz, hi, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Hi there. What's on your mind?
2: In my mind, I thought process about this is people shouldn't get tips unless uh, the person buying this product feels that she's done an extraordinary job. Your job in the food industry is to make that person feel special and happy about what they get and make sure they were a repeat customer. And yeah. How do you do?
0: A, uh, how a, do you do an extraordinary? Oh, sorry about that, Liz. How do you do an extraordinary job handing someone a cup of coffee?
2: You give them eye contact, and also you um, ask how their day was. Oh, um, well, yeah. All right. If they don't want to give you tips, I'm totally fine with that. But if you, they do not deserve a tip. Unless you feel compelled
0: to give them a tip, that's my thought process about
2: that. Liz, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, So, um, I work in the food industry. I've been for twenty some years. So, the people should give the tip, and um, if they want to, if they don't want to, they should um, have to give a tip
0: at all. Liz, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. Yeah. Now, Liz used an interesting word there. If you feel compelled, in other words, if the service is such that you feel compelled, what she's arguing and what some people they've talked to are arguing is you feel coerced in this regard. To Tom and Racine, Tom, you're on WTMJ.
3: Boy, I love my Milwaukee Brewers, but I was surprised a couple weeks ago I was at the game, and I was getting some beers at the regular stands, and you would just pay for your beer, no tip involved. But I went over by the area where they had all the specialty beers, and when I was charged my $11 for the beer, the guy hands me the same screen asking for the tip. And boy, I just had, I, I really felt uneasy um, being asked for a tip at the Brewers game on that food, especially when the beer was $11, but I, I'm, I'm very interested in giving tips to people, but not when you're handing me just a beer over the counter at a game for $11.
0: Now, do you tip in the stands where they have to run it down to you and hand it to all the people and all of that?
3: Yes. I always, you know, whatever it is, I throw on a dollar too, because, you know, the the person's coming and, and uh, you know, he's sweating, he's out in the, in the heat, and uh, and I feel, yeah, I, I would. But just handing it over the counter, now, if it was a consistent thing that you'd always do that, fine, but it's, it's not like that, and, and uh, plus, plus uh, I, I guess it was also because, for whatever reason, it was $11 instead of 7 or 8 I thought, you know, that should be enough to cover the, the guy handing it over the counter, but... That was just
0: my, that was my All right, thanks a lot for the call. I I would be inclined to agree with. I, I think there's, you know, those you're hauling the beer around. I, I've always tipped th- those people, you know. And I say those because it could be male or female. I'm listening, guys. Uh, I, I just always have. I haven't ordered a beer at a Brewers game in a long time, but that or any other sporting event to kathleen in Milwaukee, kathleen go ahead
2: hi um just wanted to share an experience with you from my younger years i used to work in a grocery store deli and at the end of the night we had to take our slicer apart and clean it and inevitably Around 5 to 9, I would get a customer in asking for something sliced thin. So I did it. It was the expectation. And I, I think that goes above and beyond customer service Comparing compared to handing somebody a muffin or a coffee. I never got a tip. It was just the expectation level of customer service.
0: Excuse me. You never got a tip at all.
2: Oh no, never. And it see, I
0: there's a place in Green Bay. I'm not going to say where, but there's a tip jar there, and I mean it's really standard. You order, it's 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 pretty much what you're describing. In fact, that uh, it, you you order, it's a deli type situation, sort of restaurant. You order, and they give you a number, and you go sit down. Someone else besides her brings it to you. You know, so I, I I, have dropped a dollar from time to time in that tip jar. Thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. I, I think it's... <laughs> I have struggled with at-the-counter tipping. And I've had people, well, you're a tightwad. Well, no, I actually think I'm a pretty generous tipper, but I've always struggled with that concept. To Dennis and Wauwatosa. Dennis, go ahead.
3: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I uh, I just got my free burger at George Webb's, Thank you all you folks at Webb's, and ah. and, uh, and I, I also they're running some specials, some really cool specials on other items on their menu. So I got a couple of other things as well, and and I made sure that I left them a tip because I know what they're in for the rest of the day. And I'm just I'm just curious. I'm ah. wondering how many other people are going to do that because these people are really going to put some long hard hours these next couple hours for them.
0: You know what I'm saying? Okay, that, y'all, I absolutely do. And you make a really good point how busy they're going to be. But you, there's something else that, that you kind of tickled in my brain here, Dennis, and that is this. When I get something for free or at a very reduced price, you know, where, where like, someone gave me mm-hmm. a gift card or something, sure. I tip really big. Do you do that? Do you tip yeah, really yeah, big I, when you I, when, I, 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 I
3: did. I did. I tip more than what... Stuff. or or like if I if I'm using a coupon where I get one and one pay for one and get one for free, I'll tip on what the original price was because to me that's the, the right thing
0: to do. Uh, Dennis, thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, oh yeah. Whenever it's reduced, I always base the tip on what the full price was. I've Got some uh, texts that I want to share uh, on this, and we'll get to those in just a minute. You do still have time to weigh in on this one as well, though. On the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, 223 News Radio, WTMJ. Well, the holidays are right around the corner. WTMJ is back with its annual holiday radio show. WTMJ presents The Night Before Christmas, starring G. Miller, Jay Nair, Jeff Wagner, and a sleigh full of Wisconsin celebrities from Turner Hall, downtown Milwaukee. That's Monday, November 26th. My goodness, that's just so much sooner. Anyway, uh, 6.30, the live radio play will be recorded in front of a studio audience, and you can be part of it. Buy tickets now. Go to WTMJ.com or text the word CHRISTMAS to 414-799-1620. On this, this whole notion of tipping someone at a counter, and the big thing now where a lot of them have the... uh the uh, iPad or a tablet, and they spin it around, and then they you are given an option of how much you want to tip. The Wall Street Journal, that's where the start of his story, in Connecticut, Mr. Dimion, who says he feels $3 of coffee is pricey enough, vented about the electronic tip prompts in a Twitter post earlier this month. The business replied from its official Twitter account, tap no tip. Mr. Dimion says he can't see doing that. I don't think I have it in me, because the person serving him can see him, and that's where he's he's not comfortable with that. Now, um, let's see. Got a bunch of texts. Got a lot of texts, including some from people who work. In the industry, uh, in the you know, in the service industry, uh, let's start with Mike and Lac. Hi, Jerry. Love your show. Love how you approach the show as well. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Uh, I would tip you, but you know, it's a little difficult. Uh, <laughs> I think tips should be voluntary and not prompted. Tips are for service. I don't really see a point in offering a tip for someone who's taking an order or ringing up your order at a cash register. Tips are for personalized service, not. For simple transactions. Uh, Another one. I was at a restaurant uh, by Johnson Creek. I was going to tip, but was stopped in my tracks because they automatically added 15%. I was a little upset since I had another server help me out. Since our server just took our order and dropped uh, off our food. I hadn't seen him until they dropped off the bill. Then we have a Uber slash Lyft driver. Riders tell me they will tip me on the app, and eighty percent of them don't. If they had to do it in front of me, it would probably be different. Well, okay, so that's really that's a really interesting point. It probably would. They feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah, I'll tip you on the app, fella. No worries. I'll be be generous. And then you get nothing. And you're saying, well, yeah, if they had to do it in front of me. But the the point is some people feel that's coercive. Uh, Let's see. Mark and River I am at work now, so can't hear if uh, you respond, Mr. Bader. But I'm on the customer service field. Some tip. Some don't. And apparently... Uh, He is in the parking lot. The problem with those circumstances is that you are tipping before you're really getting any service, and all they have done is taken your order. Ah, that is a really good point, which I had not considered. Another one, another text. They have that at Summerfest now. It's ridiculous. Next large company pizza delivery my own car and gas. many do not tip no matter the weather or time of day open till 3 a.m. Okay, there was a time where I wasn't very good at that one and I and I have to admit that and yeah you know in like a snowstorm that's you know whatever the situation again the delivery like that, they don't make a ton of money and if it's really good service, they're friendly. I I actually, you know, the new one improved me. I, in fact, do tip in those situations. I still haven't mentioned what Lambeau Field has to do with the Milwaukee Brewers, but I will before 3 o'clock. The Brewers continue to take a shot at the World Series. Which unsung hero has the best chance of helping the team get there? John McCurron and Greg Matzik. Explore at 434, Wisconsin's Afternoon News. If you were listening to Melissa's news there, and why weren't you listening to Melissa's news if you weren't? Anyway, if you were listening to the news, you heard uh, that when Governor Walker was on with Steve Scafidi this morning at WTMJ, he joked did the governor that during the debate tomorrow night, the gubernatorial debate, he is going to ask, I assume he's joking, He's going to ask the moderator to to give score updates on the NLCS Game Six. I don't know that that's going to happen, and I'm pretty sure the governor is joking about that. But it did remind me of something. I might as well do this now. I was going to try to get it in before three o'clock. This qualifies. It's before three o'clock. So I was at Lambeau Field for Monday night football game that was frustrating. Because the 49ers are not a good team. The Packers should not have been in a competitive game, but they were. And we can only wonder what that tells us about where the Packers are right now. But as you perhaps are aware, that's when the Brewers were playing. So this has been a sometime problem. I've had success, other times not. Connectivity, cell phone connectivity in Lambeau Field. There was nothing, not on data, not on Wi-Fi, not nothing. It was sporadic, maybe once in a while. I was with my uh, daughter's father-in-law, and he had a little better success. And we were trying to get the Brewer score. You know what ended up happening? So a friend of mine in Atlanta, Georgia, texted, hey, you have the game? And I said, yep. And he said, hey, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, by the way... (laughs) Can you send Brewer scores? And he did throughout the rest of the game. And he did spare me the ninth inning where the Brewers almost blew it. He didn't tell me that. He just said the score, 4 nothing, top of the eighth, bottom of the eighth, top of the ninth win. Which was very nice of him to spare me the gory details. But several around us, I mean, every, not everybody, but many people around us were trying to get the Brewer score. And I... I'm going to reach out to someone at the PAC organization that I know. It's not Watergate or anything. I'm just asking. Bill Jarts, PA announcer at Lambeau Field, he's also a, a TV news anchor in Green Bay. Bill Jarts gave the Dodger-Brewers score at halftime, or Brewers-Dodgers, at halftime. And at the conclusion of the game, he announced that the Brewers had won I picked up on it by then. I think most people, not all but most. I just wonder I mean it's a rare thing. Maybe they just didn't think about it. It's it's a rare occasion that you have a Brewers play this could be the first time that you've had a Brewers playoff game during a, a Packers game. Now there are conflicts in regular season games, but for a little while but you don't I mean you're not good. I can see where you're not going to do it there. You have to you have to assume, if you're the Packers, that there's huge overlap in Brewers fans and Packers fans. I was surprised. I really thought they would do it like on the quarters or something. They did it at halftime. Which was something. And then I thought, then it occurred to me, oh, man, they're probably not going to do this again till the end of the game, the Packers game. And that's exactly what they did. And then they announced the Brewers win. So, meantime, we're all scrambling to get the score however we can. And then I found out that uh, the in-laws, he's got like Superman vision. He's looking way up at Lambeau Field and he can see a TV inside with the Brewers game on. That's all I can make out. I can tell that it's the Brewers game. We are in the south end zone. Fairly high up, but still a long distance from that TV. And he can see what's going on. Oh, Lorenzo Kane is up. Someone just hit a double. I'm like, how are you seeing this? Because I couldn't make out anything. So in the end, the Brewers won, of course. They have not won since. Boy, back to Milwaukee and backs against the wall. I mean I there's that thirteen inning game. I just I just I woke up to it. I certainly didn't stay up for it. And when I saw that they lost a thirteen inning game, I thought, boy, that just feels like the one that if they're going to win this series, they 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 just had to win that. So tomorrow, of course, is must win. Huge game. I have absolutely no access to the game on television. I don't want to bother streaming it. I, in fact, will be listening to the boys. I, uh, Bob Eucher, man, uh, you know Bob and Jeff do a great job. At, at, because someone, a friend this week, said, so "Well, why don't you stream it?" <sighs> I've thought about it. But, I mean, I, I mean, I always loved their call. But it is just so good in the playoffs. And, you know, knock on wood, if the Brewers win tomorrow night, I just, that's going to be such a great call to hear as that game ends. They've, they've, you know, if they're going to get it to seven games, obviously, if they're going to win this series, this series the NLCS, they're going to have to win tomorrow. I believe they can do it. The offense is going to have to come to life. And what's happened with Christian Yelich in the NLCS, it just seems that happens more often than not. Where you've got a superstar like that, you've got a guy who has carried the team, and let's face it, offensively, you take him out of the equation, and the Brewers are not two games away from the World Series. They're just not. He's struggling. He's making no excuses for those struggles. Tomorrow night would be a really good night to break out of it. All right, I do want to next get to the story of the Saudi dissident journalist who has been in the United States writing for the Washington Post, who clearly has been murdered. Who is the question? What should the Trump administration do or not do? 242 News Radio WTMJ. The Brewers have taken matchup driven baseball to a whole new level this postseason. Is that strategy going to become the norm in playoff baseball? Matt Paul is in for Greg Matzik, and he'll open debate at 6.15 on Brewers tonight. All right. Oh, before we get to the Saudi story, and we'll get to that in just a second. So Dale was also at Lambeau Field during the Brewers game. He says he had pitch-by-pitch accounts on his phone, no issue. Well, you're a lucky man, Dale. A lot of us didn't. Justin, meanwhile, says, unfortunately, thousands trying to simultaneously stream a game at one location completely overloaded the Lambo Wi-Fi and nearby cell towers, so your strategy about announcing the score would have made sense. It didn't occur to me, and and I, I don't know that Justin has it exactly right, If if that was in the news, I missed it, but... I suppose there were a lot of people trying to video stream the Brewers game, huh? Oh, yeah, that would that would be Crash City. All right, this story posting at the Washington Post about an hour ago. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo urged the White House on Thursday to, lo- to allow a few more days for Saudi Arabia to issue its own findings in the disappearance of writer Jamal Khashoggi ...even as Turkish police sharply expanded their investigation. There's a cognitive dissonance going on here between the U.S. and Turkey on this. Turkish authorities said they will now search at least two rural areas outside Istanbul... ...local news agencies and a Turkish official said The move suggests possible new leads. In a sign of the the discussions with the White House... ...President Trump has said any U.S. response to Khashoggi's disappearance must take into account the security and defense ties the United States has with the kingdom, not to mention the lucrative business deals, which the president, in fact, has mentioned. But in the administration's first formal rebuke of Saudi Arabia over the Khashoggi case, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said Thursday that he would join many other political leaders and business execs canceling their participation in a major investment forum in the Saudi capital, Riyadh, next week. Mnuchin made the announcement after consulting with Trump and Pompeo hours earlier, finance chiefs from France, Britain, and the Netherlands announced they were out of that meeting. Here's what I would say. The United States cannot accept the findings of Saudi Arabia's own investigation. I'm sure that by now you've heard the reports of the existence of a grisly, ghastly recording of Khashoggi's death. And that there was a Saudi team lying for him in wait when he went to the consulate in Turkey to get documents to get married. I understand patience and finding out what actually happened, but to believe for a moment that we're going to find out from a Saudi investigation what actually happened is naive in the extreme. To George in Milwaukee, George, hi. You're on WTMJ.
3: Hi, how you doing? To me, this I'm is doing well. very. very- This is very, very simple to me. Uh, Saudi Arabia literally has this over a barrel. They have the money. Anybody that powerful would be able to get away with anything that they want to. And that's when nothing's going to happen. And whatever they find out, there may be a little bit of bluster here and there, but the guy basically is going to get away with it. That's my opinion. Just like uh, anything that has to do with money always wins out. That's the history of the country.
0: Well, George, and what, I mean, the President, President Trump clearly has signaled that that is where his mindset is, that he understands this is a very serious situation, yet, he says, look, we've got these lucrative business deals. The problem, though, if you're right, and this is, first, I disagree, boy, if the Trump administration takes the Saudis' word for it on their own investigation. We don't even do that in, in Wisconsin anymore when it comes to police-related shootings. We make another agency investigate it. Now, it would be nice if Turkish intelligence started sharing more with the United States. But the signal that would send, George, if things break the way you're saying, if there is strong evidence that the Saudis did this, then that signal to just about everyone around the world as long as you do business with the United States, you can get away with whatever you want. And you think you that the United States... About... got? Right, thanks a lot for the call, George. George yeah. believes uh, that the United States is, in fact, prepared to do that. I think the President's comparison of this with the Kavanaugh case was, is apples and oranges. Now, again, we don't... We don't have a lot of things firsthand. We have very little firsthand. The Turkish government is leaking things out in a way to put a lot of pressure on the United States and Saudi Arabia. And the president, uh, President Trump earlier buying the rogue killers. That's just absolute nonsense. And look, if the Saudis did this, this would hardly be their first human rights infraction. We have, as others have pointed out, have turned a blind eye because we do see them as a valuable ally strategically, financially, and we have let a lot of things just slide. This, however, if the gruesome nature, and I concede it is still an if, but if the gruesome nature of Khashoggi's death is, as it's being described right now, from the second-hand accounts, from what we are getting of that recording. If that's how this went down, I just do not possibly, possibly see how the U.S. government allows, allows the Saudi version of events to be what stands. And it looks like there's a danger of that when you have Pompeo urging Trump to give Saudi a few more days. Look, very little shocks me anymore these days, but I will be completely shocked if a Saudi investigation (laughs) implicates the Saudis. I mean, that's, that's simply not going to happen. Pompeo, who held talks this week in Riyadh and the Turkish capital Ankara, said he told Trump to give Saudi Arabia a little more time to complete its investigation into the disappearance of Khashoggi. And it's really, it's going to come back with anything other than we had nothing to do with it? Referring to the separate Turkish investigation, Pompeo said, We do believe that between these two efforts, a complete picture will emerge for what actually transpired here. That, he said, would inform how or if The United States should respond to the incident. Now, he may be right about that, or it may be they did it, no, we didn't. But you would presume that if the Turkish government's going to do that, they would have the facts on their side. Again, from the Post, it is uncertain, however, if a self-run inquest or conclusions by the Saudis would quell international fear over the disappearance of Khashoggi. It's uncertain. It's not uncertain at all. That's not going to quell anything. He was Khashoggi, a Saudi citizen, and a Washington Post-contributing columnist. He was last seen October 2nd after entering the Saudi consulate, his fiance waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for hours. The Saudi leaders have denied any knowledge of Khashoggi's fate. So look, they're saying already we know nothing about it if they are implicated, and, if, and in fact, if it does go all the way to the top, there's not they're not going to admit that. And I think very clearly, and not as clearly as they have been saying it, either the president or Pompeo or both need to say, we are not going to rely on the word of the Saudi government here in terms of discerning what happened. We'll listen to what they have to say. And Pompeo does seem to be saying that that you know we will also listen to what the turkish government has to say i'll say it again it would be extremely helpful If the Turkish government would be willing to be sharing more intelligence. Now, it may be that they don't want to give up their hand on how they got that information. And some believe, in fact, they may have violated international law in getting it. Even if that is the case, ultimately, they're going to have to, at some point, show their hand to the United States. 255 News Radio WTMJ.